All right, we are live. This is Shaheen Shan and my co-host Bart Baggett. Welcome to Hack and Grow Rich. Man, this is the podcast. If you want to make money, make more money, and be happy on the way to the dance, this is uh, the show for you. Uh, Shaheen is one of the world's top experts in selling on Amazon. You probably had dozens of different businesses. Going down your resume is going to be pretty difficult. Um, I've written a few books on success. I'm probably best known as one of the leading handwriting experts, which basically is psychology. You know, what makes people tick? And so we have interesting guests on that talk about how to hack life and just make a little bit more fun. We have a pretty cool guest today, but I'm going to hold it just a second, and uh, we're going to talk a pretty cool topic. What are we going to talk about tonight, Shaheen? Bart, there are a lot of a-holes in the world. A lot of difficult people. And if you are watching this, and by the way, I want to welcome our Facebook Live audience. Guys, if you are watching us on Facebook Live, we will be answering live questions. And Brian Sergitz, one of my all-time heroes and very close friends, is going to be on live with us. So if anybody's got any questions, please get ready to ask them. But uh, And that's speaking of somebody who is not an a-hole. Um, the world is full of difficult people. So how do you deal with difficult people? Because you're not going to be able to erase them from your life. You, at some point, are going to have to deal with them. And as humans, we are wired in such a way. I don't know, Bart, if, if it's a survival thing or what that is. But we are wired in a way to avoid confrontation. Now, some people are very comfortable with confrontation, and to other people, it's the kiss of death. But the whole entire fact that there will be difficult people in life that will be completely out of your control no matter how much of a bubble you live in, I think it makes sense to figure out a hack to how to deal with them. And today on the show, that's what we're going to talk about. What is the hack, the workaround to dealing with difficult people? And I've got a few tips, especially for any of you guys out there, business people who come up across the person, the DMV desk lady or the postal guy or any of these difficult people who are in between you and what you want to achieve. And I'm going to tell you how to deal with them and give you one special tip on how to deal with people on the phone. If you're having difficulty on the phone, and then we can go into some advanced hacks that we use in dealing with very difficult people. Bart, what's your secret? I'm sure you've got no shortage of difficult people popping up here and there in your life. What do, what do you do? How do you deal with difficult people? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I remember back when I was a child, my dad had me read Dale Carnegie's book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so while that was written in the 50s, I, I think this, some of the same... Um, tools uh, uh, basically show up in your life. If you know how to get rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, then you can deal with difficult people in a more elegant way. Um, at my point in life, I just kind of avoid a-holes. Like, I just don't want them in my circle. We actually fired a client last week. She was so difficult. We're just like, give her money back. We're not interested. It's a waste of time. So I had the luxury of not having to be face-to-face. -face. But I think all the skills that, that some of the fundamental tools of neuro-linguistic programming, matching, mirroring, 
you know, understanding the language and basically maintaining rapport is the way that I, I handle those people. But I also want to get out of the room as fast as possible. Like I literally just don't enjoy it and I don't have to anymore. But, you know, those poor people that are on the front line, they're workers at the, you know, the, the, a friend of mine's a flight attendant, like they have to deal with them constantly. And that's unfortunate for them. Yeah. Look, I think you're right. Ultimately, yeah, it's just like we always talk about, just like in martial arts. The guys I know that are the most proficient at martial arts are the most likely to walk away from a fight. If you don't have to fight with somebody, dude, walk away. I mean, for any of us that are in there training every day, grappling, kickboxing, whatever it is that you're doing, if you get into fights every day, be it controlled fights as far as sparring goes or training fights, you know that you don't want to fight with anybody unless your life is at risk or the life of a loved one is at risk. It is just not worth it. And it's funny because we talk about this where guys come up and go, I'm going to kick your ass. And you go, okay, great. What exactly are you going to do? And you just see the blank stare on their face. And, and you know, you're like, he's never thought about it. It's just pure dumb rage. But let me tell you a couple hacks. So I think the first thing you do when you come across a difficult person is you try to melt the ice. Usually, people have at least three levels of protections up. Now, if this person is a self-realized person, let's say it's somebody who, who meditates or has some kind of discipline or practice, they take cold baths, whatever it is, and they've got some mechanism for self-reflection, they may only have one or two levels of defense. So now your path is crossing this person's path. Now, here's the amazing thing. And I learned this from Alan Watts, the great philosopher, who, by the way, there's an amazing book out. His kids um, took all the letters that he's written in his entire life from like the 1950s to the Harvard LSD experiments and Timothy Leary all the way until his death in the 1970s. And they published them in a book. And it's a very telling book. It's the life letters of Alan Watts, but I really recommend that. Maybe we'll have one of the daughters on the show at some point because Watts was a hero of mine. And I know you're, you're a big fan as well, Bart. But one of the, the interesting things that I learned from him is that when we see this person, and I love to use this word, manifest in front of us. So this stranger shows up in front of us and that person is being a complete asshole, like just complete, like unacceptable behavior. All we're seeing is this person presenting in front of us and that person's current attitude. We don't know anything before that. So most people similarly that are un self-realized that have very little self-reflection will be like, fuck you, asshole, you know, like whatever. They will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the guy. I think that's the wrong way. If you stop and think about, I call this melting the ice. Now, melting the ice can happen just with you alone or could happen with them. So you can start guessing what that person's been through in the last hour, the last day, the last week. Or you can get into a conversation with them and maybe even try to learn what's happened. Because sometimes people will start telling you, man, I've had a shitty day. I just crashed my car. You know, my kid got kicked out of school. My, you know, people will tell you. And when you learn that trajectory of what that person has been through, it allows you to be more empathetic to that person. And 
possibly allows you to get one step closer to breaking through one of those three layers of protection that people have, that these difficult people have. I don't believe that most people want to be assholes. There are some people that are just, they're just assholes, right? There are psychopaths in the world. And I, we, we've all, we all know them and we've all seen them. But in general, most people come to some level of trauma before they start representing this asshole presentation that makes everybody else's life difficult. So, <clears throat> excuse me, my initial hack to it is you try to break the ice. You try to soften them up. And that's by first internally trying to think about where's this person go. And one of the hacks that um, uh, Sir Wilde taught me a long time ago was that you try to make up a story in your own mind about where this person has been. So you might say to yourself, hey, this guy uh, has just been in a car accident and his house caught on fire and whatever. And then when you look at the person again, he might not seem as assholish or it might be more acceptable, which in turn gives you the ability to react differently to that person. So I think that that's one of the first hacks is, is kind of trying to break the ice. But what do you do? I know you are one of the most people persons I know. You have a way about you that I think can calm most people around you in any situation. I've seen you be the moderator around very difficult people. I've seen you go in and, and turn a situation that could get hot, cool. What's, what's your secret to that? For, for me, it, the sense of humor is, is always the great equalizer if you can pull it off. And, and I know that's not, nothing everyone can teach. You know, the being able to, to say something slightly inappropriate, slightly funny, call out the, you know, the elephant in the room and just point it out. A really funny story comes to mind. I was heading over to um, a friend's house, and uh, I was with a girl. This was in Beverly Hills, and I must have stayed at the stop sign like, you know, two or three seconds too long, right? And uh, I'm in my Mercedes, and all of a sudden this guy starts honking at me and flashing his lights and he pulls up next to me and I rolled down the window and he just gave me a piece of my mind. I mean, he's yelling and cussing and screaming and that kind of stuff. And I go, have a nice day. And I roll up the window and, and the, the girl's like, how did you do that? You didn't even get mad. How did you not react when someone's yelling, screaming? And I'm like, what he thinks of me is none of my business. Yeah, like he, I'm just some guy in a car. He does not bar it. It's not bar bag it. He didn't. It's basically a completely random stranger. That's his issue. So I think the issue is you have to be really good at state management, and really good at not getting your buttons pushed, and maintain the sense of frame, because people mm -hmm. that are that way are normally running. Uh, they're being reactive to something, and it's rarely about you. I mean, obviously, if it's your wife or your, or, your, or your dad or your mom yelling at you personally, that can get under your skin. But if it's random strangers or people that don't know you, it's their stuff, not mine. So I always had that awareness that really it's not about me. And it's, it's really if I can control my emotional state, then I can actually control their emotional state. And that's how I hack it is I just don't let people get under my skin. That's fascinating. All right. I've got a confession to make. I also do the opposite just to practice dealing with difficult people. So this is one of my favorite things in the world to do. And I'm, I'm confessing this to you now. It's borderline criminal, but as you guys remember, I am a terrible criminal, so it's not really criminal. So you know how you go to like a grocery store and you check out 
and you get to the to the to the you know conveyor line that they have before you get to the register and they have those stupid little things that go in between your stuff and the person behind you stuff and i'm convinced that those are intended to reduce human interaction because people can't fucking deal with talking to people anymore to say no my stuff ends at the fucking kickout bar right you have to add an extra cent like it's so fucking hard to do and people love those sticks they're fucking rule lovers so i all i never put one of those sticks down but when i go to the supermarket line or costco or wherever i am less and less these days because of covid i will and and my wife has seen this and it infuriates her because she's a she's a human rights publicist so she just panics when i do this i will remove their little divider stick and just watch it gives me such joy i saw this man this big like uh, a bodybuilder guy and i just removed it and he just looks at me and he i, I see the panic in the guy's face and he's reaching out looking for another one of these things and there isn't another fucking stick so he puts his hand on the conveyor line rather than just communicating with the lady and saying, hey, this is my stuff or communicating with me and telling me don't take it. This is, this, this is always interesting to me because I love to watch people and their reaction, but the majority of people are not comfortable with conflict. And I think that's, that's a big problem. So let me give you a couple hacks here, guys. Um, about dealing with difficult people on the phone. A lot of my work happens around e-commerce, as you know, Bart, and we're constantly dealing with phone centers, phone operators, and oftentimes I have my virtual assistants doing this. I have my VAs get on the phone and call customer service. Now, if you don't have a virtual assistant or haven't had a virtual assistant before, they're glorious, incredible ways, you know, uh, Tim Ferriss popularized having a virtual assistant, somebody in South or Central America do this. And I teach this to everybody in my Amazon mastery course um, about how to, uh, how to hire virtual assistants so you can utilize somebody else's time rather than your own. But anytime something is going to be more than a one or two minute wait, calling my cell phone company, calling the utilities companies, calling my kids' school, whatever, I have my VA's call. Now, here's a rule that we have. And I, it goes to your point, Bart, about being preemptive. I think what, what you said wisely in fewer words is the best way to deal with assholes is not to deal with them at all. Very Zen today, Bart. I think it's this. This is what we do. From the get-go, we ask for a supervisor. You can make your ask once. I would like my bill reduced. There's a problem. If they can't help you within two minutes, ask for a supervisor every time. Tell your VAs to ask for a supervisor. Why? Everybody's intimidated to go up the line of command. It costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to escalate immediately from day one. And my favorite line of all time is, well, sir, my supervisor is going to tell you what I just told you. Well, it's like, well, fuck you. Then why aren't you the supervisor? <laughs> that happens all the time. And you know what? The supervisor never tells you exactly what they tell you. Otherwise, they wouldn't be the supervisor. So escalate from the get-go. Second and last hack that I have for you guys in dealing with difficult people is there are services out there. And if you reach out to me, I will give you access to one of the best ones out there where you can have the ultimate escalation. They have attorneys. Pre, these attorneys are pre-vetted. 
They're real attorneys. They will write letters for you on big attorney letterhead and send it to companies big and small. Now, the cost of this is anywhere from 30 bucks to 100 bucks a month. It's like AAA for fucking wow. legal services. And I will share a link with anybody who wants to, but you got to email me and I'm going to share my email right now. This is my direct email is D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. And I'll share it on the Facebook live too for anybody that um, is on Facebook that wants to get it. Just reach out to me and ask for the legal link. Now, once you get one of these memberships, there's, I think they start at 29 bucks, 25 bucks a month. I've got no affiliation to it, by the way. So, you know, you call up an attorney or have your VA call up the attorney and have them write a letter. What happens when the attorney writes a legal letter? Well, it's no longer a peon customer service person. Now it goes to a $500 an hour attorney, probably at a private firm that now is looking at this thing and going, fuck, man. Just give them what they want. Like, this isn't worth my time. And nine out of 10 times, you will win. You will win. So reach out to me. I'll give you that link. Should we talk about our guest, Bart? I think it's time. Yeah, I'm really excited about this guy. I mean, he dropped a couple of names. I'm like, you did what? You toured with who? You hung out with who? Like, oh, it's fascinating. And I think he's going to be a really good insight on how to deal with difficult people if you can hang out with rock stars and they still like you after a couple of months. Yeah. I mean, Brian Sergitz, who we're about to have on, is actually, in my opinion, one of the best. He is one of these guys that when you get to know him, um, it's hard not to like him. He has a certain quality about him. So Brian has dedicated the majority of his life to social causes. And in fact, I think he's widely considered in the industry as the father of social impact. Brian uh, was senior vice president at, of impact at AOL. He worked for Huffington Post and uh, Ariana uh, at the Huffington Post. Um, I won't for a second, I wanted to say Ariana Grande, but I'm sure that's not the Ariana he worked for. Uh, I think it was Ariana Huffington. So that was at the Huffington Post. Um, and Brian is an all in out interesting guy. Brian, I want to welcome you on the show. Go ahead and unmute yourself, bud. And there oh. you are, Brian. And I also know something about you that maybe people don't know from the outside because people look at you and they go, oh, Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur, Silicon Valley executive, you know, very sought after. I know that you hang with the cream of the crop out there and always had because I think people with great wealth and impact in the world see the impact that someone like you can bring. And every you're the guy that everybody wants on. But let's rewind just a little bit to before that. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your current startup to empathy, which is, is super exciting. But you started out in the music industry, didn't you? Mm -hmm. I did. Tell us about that. Um, the, it was really an accident. My, um, I was, as I was going from boarding school to, uh, to, to live in Manhattan, um, my friend who I went to school with said, Hey, I'm doing this band at NYU. And I think that you'd make a great manager. Um, and so I was like, all right, what does a manager do? And I had no idea. He's like, well, I guess you just get us gigs. And, you know, I was like, all right. So I started literally cold calling 
promoters at, at, uh, in venues in downtown New York. And I'd literally show up with like cassette tapes and promise them I was going to bring them like 50 NYU students and, and just to get like 50 bucks to a hundred bucks. But it was really the idea of the band consistently being, you know, um, you know, touring and having their name in the village voice. And I remember, you know, one day getting to meet one of my heroes, a guy named Rod Delsner, who was one of the biggest promoters in all of, of the East coast, did a lot of the New York big shows. And he's like, Hey, he's like, you're like a little Ron Delsner. And I was like, I was like, oh, you know, when I met him and I'm 19 and then I'm in college and, and uh, what happened was my, uh, my friend Molly said, my father wants to meet you. He's an agent. And I was like, okay. So she, we lived in the same building um, and I go to meet him. He's forming a new company. I start playing him a demo of the band I'm managing. Cause I think he wants to talk about it. Obviously it was, it was, uh, that's not what he, you know, sort of what I was there for. And he said, my daughter says you want a job with me. Why? And I was like, well, I'm interested in communications. And in that moment, I literally just sort of spitball, like just like why I was, I was there sitting with him. And uh, long story short, um, I ended up being the first assistant hired at a company called Artists and Audience Entertainment. Turned out Alex was the, uh, the agent for Guns N' Roses and Paul McCartney left ICM, started this small boutique agency, and I was the first assistant hired. And so literally I was just building the desks and, you know, it was four people in the company. And the next thing you know, like I'm being asked to assist him on the road with uh, GNR and, and, and um, starting and standing up this, uh, this agency. And I was still at school. Wait, so wait, wait. that's how I got started. You went on tour with Guns N' Roses and Paul McCartney. Yes, it was, it was um, at, while I was still at NYU, but not going to my classes. Um, I you was, got to uh, party with Guns N' Roses. I actually technically, uh, it was illegal for me based on my uh, employment with my boss to, uh, to party with them since I was underage. Um, and I wasn't allowed to, to hang out with them. But then uh, there's a story that I think we'll, we can get to an, uh, another time of, of, of Boston and uh, that the band wanted to sink their teeth into me because they were wondering who this kid was that was around them and they couldn't party with them. So, but that's a different story. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. And so from there you moved on to deep in the music industry. After that, I know you represented Aaliyah's estate, Aaliyah the great musician who passed away in a fatal plane crash. And I think recently it was the anniversary of her passing away, is that right? Yeah, it was the 20th anniversary of, of uh, her passing. She was uh, you know, August 25th, 2001. Yeah, and how, how did you go to managing Aaliyah and, and her estate? Um... Uh, I, you know, as I said, I, I was, as I was working with, with bands when I was at NYU, well, it turns out that I flunked out of NYU and, and, uh, um, it, it took me about nine years to go back under academic probation. I literally had to convince them to take me back, uh, to, so I was like one of the oldest sophomores in the history of the school. Um, and after I graduated, uh, and I took all my classes that I flunked out of over again to, get the F removed. And, um, I was, uh, I ended up getting a job being the president of elementary records, which was owned by the rock band corn. And I was a part of the company called the firm, which had the Dixie chicks and Leonardo DiCaprio. And I was the only New York city employee again, tasked to sort of build a New York presence, but I was 
working with uh, Corn, And so working with them for a few years, running the label, and through Jonathan Davis, who was the singer of Corn, I ended up meeting Rashad Houghton, who was Aaliyah's brother. Turned out Jonathan did all the music for Queen of the Damned, which uh, Aaliyah starred in. And when she passed, Rashad had to do some of the vocal overdubs for his sister. And um, when we met, it was, it, was, um, uh, it was like the first year after she passed, but we stayed in touch. And you know, after I left working for Korn, um, basically it was a really interesting story of actually how um, I went to the church for her uh, for uh, based on the anniversary of her passing. And uh, I ended up meeting the mother and the family. And, um, you know, I felt so much empathy for, for Rashad and, and the family and what they were going through. I literally, like, as I was saying goodbye, I actually ended up kissing his forehead. And I don't think I've ever done that to anybody in my entire life. And a week later, he calls me up. He's like, hey, my mom would love to have dinner with you to meet the guy who kissed my forehead. And randomly, and so we had dinner and then it was, uh, you know, they offered the position of, of um, being able to steward um, with um, another, they're the accountant of the Ali estate to, to build up what would be, um, you know, an organization that would not just protect Aliyah's legacy, but make sure that we can generate revenue that could actually benefit the Aliyah Memorial Fund that the family was standing up. And it was very important for them to basically figure out how to do all these things. So I came in and was, was, uh, was responsible for that. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. You can decline to answer if you want to, because I want to get into, I know there's a lot more to your story here. Yes. Yes. Um, And if we need to edit out, we don't usually edit, but we can, we can try to edit this too. We are live on Facebook. All right. Well, except for Facebook live. Okay. It's fine. All right. So are you familiar at all with any of the conspiracy theories going on about Aaliyah right now? Very much so, yes. That are somewhat trending. Okay. So one of the conspiracy theories, and I can see Bart already cringing, is was Aaliyah killed by the Illuminati to make way for Beyonce? I can uh, respond. Yeah, that, that it would be incorrect. Okay, so you're going to say no on that. All right. I'm going to. I'm. A, it's a no on that. Yeah. It's just. It, it's you know. Again, her. You know her. She, she was so genuine in what she did and, and and who she was that, you know, people even Destiny's Child back then gravitated to, you know, her magic. And I think that a lot of this stuff is unfortunate. That's, you know, I would say stop it. You know really people getting to know her her magic in terms of how she connected with people. Uh, and I think when she passed, people were so upset by it because again, it was, she really led by her own truth. And yeah. it's just what, what you're talking about there is, you know, people who, um, who uh, spend too much time debating things that have no basis in truth whatsoever, but they get to, I think it brings people, I think, it, again, it gets back to the topic of dealing with difficult people. I think it, it really is about how do we connect within other individuals? And I think a lot of this is a lot of people that are not connected and it's a byproduct of the, of um, some toxicity with the um, information and platforms that like they say, like the, oh, you know, a lie travels the, the world five times by the time the truth is tying its shoes is an old saying that we have. So 
um, it is what it is, yeah. but that's, no, that's not true. Yeah. And my friend and yours too, Stuart Townsend, who starred in this with her, I believe he told me he was scheduled to be on that plane with her and something happened, some kind of divine intervention and he couldn't make the flight that was, I think, supposed to be off in the Bahamas. And we should get Stuart on. I think he might have some interesting stories um, to tell uh, about that as well, uh, along with his own. Okay, so then I will not bore you with the other ones because I think every single one of these conspiracy theories that I'm seeing about Aaliyah now have to do with Illuminati. And I think anytime yeah, you see Illu Illuminati in, <laughs> in there. Yeah, and I'm not gonna bother, I'm not, I'm not even gonna breathe any sort of oxygen and giving any credence to any of it. It's just, again, the, it's a, it's a, it's sad that it's a, that it's a, that it's a, something that people are talking about. And, and I think she should be remembered for the human being that she was and how much she gave to other people and her music that is just actually people are discovery discovering for the first time. Yeah, well, look, I mean, rock and roll and I'm sure hip hop, R&B alike, a lot of the power of, this, of, of that music is through story. So I get it. I get why, you know, people think there's a cowboy that looks like Jim Morrison walking through the American Midwest and people say Jim Morrison. Have, did you hear about this? Art Bell in the original Coast to Coast shows on his AM Coast to Coast shows before Art Bell passed, one of the great AM radio hosts of all time. You remember Art Bell? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. My parents glued till four in the morning and it was great. And in fact, when I had a show, my mom's like, well, I heard Art Bell talk about the aliens. Let me tell you about the grays and the blues. It was really oh, yeah. fun. Uh, he, he was a terrific host. Yeah. I got, I got an opportunity to meet him a couple times and, and a really interesting guy just cause he was so far out there, but like he had this dude on who the dude really looked like Jim Morrison. And it was like, well, he's, you know, Jim Morrison never died. He just couldn't handle the limelight, uh, allegedly, and moved somewhere to the American Midwest and is just living his life out in obscurity as a cowboy. And they did, they found the guy, they had him on the show and it was like, you know, and then finally they had the manager on the manager, much like Brian was like, it's a sad story. The guy died on heroin. I don't know what these people are talking about, <laughs> but it's, it's that story. It's that legend. You know, even back to the blues, you know, of Robert Johnson and all, all these guys, you know, music is always enhanced and embellished by these stories. So, so I get it. So Brian, let's move on from Aaliyah. Then you moved on your next big thing was in the social impact space. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. And for the people who don't know, um, tell us about what social impact is and why we should care at all. I, I always say, you know, my wife handles, and you know my wife well, you know, she handles the, the uh, you know, philanthropic part of our lives. And, you know, anytime she brings up that four-letter word, nonprofit, um, I always say it's against my religion and right. I know that you cringe about that as well, but, but, but tell us more about why you uh, developed what's now social impact theory and what that means and what it's all about. Sure. Um, on, uh, you know, when I was working with corn uh, as the president of elementary records, you know, I literally just took the position uh, right after I graduated from NYU and about in, in about like, I would say about, End of May 2001, I spent some time in Costa Rica. And after I came back and again started to stand up the label, um, you know, on, on January 9th in 2001, the parent company, the firm had a party 
for the launch of Pony, which was a which was an actual um, a new brand that they were relaunching with all the bands. We had Lincoln Park, Dixie Chicks, Link, Limp Biscuit, and uh, and on you know again, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm on September 9th, and then on September 10th. It was again, you know, just you know, people that were just sort of leaving town, and then on, uh, you know, my I lived in Tribeca, New York, and then on September, the morning of September 11th, I awoke to the first plane hitting the tower, the first tower. Um, I, you know, uh, I lived about eight blocks away from the World Trade Center, um, and you know, uh, ended up walking down there, and you know, we weren't sure what was happening. You know, again, this was the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11. I, you know, in a nutshell, I saw a lot of people, you know, jumping from the buildings. I, you know, the building first, the, as the first tower fell, we ran from the cloud, thought we were dead. Cloud caught up with us. Um, my roommate who recorded a lot of it was whisked off by CBS News in a truck, brought to Midtown to talk about what he saw. We didn't know we were in the middle of a life-changing event. On And so... You know, literally, you know, get trying to get in touch with our parents, you know, that were alive, that were, you know, where we were okay. And, you know, what happened on the next day when we woke up is like, what do you do? And so we walked down there and we saw, uh, you know, we followed a truck that was moving its way through. And literally when the truck opened its door, we literally were the first people taking stuff off that truck. And next thing you know, we're Red Cross volunteers bringing stuff into Stuyvesant School. Um, what was the, you know, which was called first triage and the doctors were all setting up uh, the stations there in order to take the inbound of, of people that were injured um, in the lobby of Stuyvesant. Well, there was something called second triage, which was the, what was left of the American Express lobby. We brought supplies from Stuyvesant as the first staging sent into the actual, that lobby uh, in order to have another, uh, you know, supply center. And then what we called ground zero, which was the third triage, which was through the Amex building on the other side. And then I would take um, uh, food that we found in the Stuyvesant kitchen, like cold raviolis. I'd take a metal bin and I'd walk on the pile while the actual firefighters and police officers were looking for people. And we did, I did that for about two weeks. But on 9-12, I tell people that even though I was on, you know, in the midst of, of, of you know, these, the buildings that were collapsed and people that were looking for their loved ones. And there was so much outpouring of, of pain. Um, but there was also this outpouring of empathy. And there was this conflict that was happening within me as I was on top of the pile in which that I was, you know, I was feeling this, this tragedy of what I experienced. But at the same time, all anybody wanted to do was to help somebody else. All somebody wanted to do was actually literally show up for somebody and actually be of service. And Rumi's got a great uh, a great quote that, that always resonated with me is like, take off the mask, your face is glorious. And on that day, I saw people without masks for the first time. And I think our truth really is, if you take off the mask, what is your actual, what is your absolute, your nature? And that nature was to help people. So that became the idea of what I believed is what I wanted to do with, you know, social impact. Wow. So from there, you went off with um, uh, another guy, a Silicon Valley investor, uh, and you became the president of a company called Causecast, which I remember when you started that thing was like, it was like YouTube for charity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, 
literally a social network that was video based around social causes. The idea was before there was social media, you know, that uh, anyone would want to, could be uh, a content creator. Again, I think when we see this, we were thinking about 13 years too soon. Um, you know, now with Instagram and TikTok, everyone it becomes an actual, their own studio. And so they, so we believe that you give people a page, the ability to raise money for things that were important to them. They could be broadcasting based on what they cared about and that the real human connection between people was about what you cared about, you know? And so that started the idea. Uh, we launched it at TechCrunch 50. Um, we had some great backing and we had about 30 people working for us at the time. And then the market corrected within the first month that we launched. And, you know, uh, Ryan, who was the, you know, the founder and CEO of Coscast at the time was like, well, what do we do? And we came up with ideas in which to keep the company together and people employed. And then one of those happened to be, um, you know, uh, we created a content vertical called Impact and we partnered with other publications, Forbes, MySpace and the Huffington Post were our initial launch partners. And the Huffington Post one just took off like a, like a rocket. We were, we created the first way for people to send money through a news article to a family directly. Um, so much that the Huffington Post lawyers had to create disclosure language that Neiman Lab, which was the journalism watchdog groups, like in the history of journalism, we've never seen anything like this. It was basically the beginning of, a, of the GoFundMe model that you can actually literally send people money directly based on their story. Um, and within 36 hours of launching, we raised like $40,000 for this family in Florida based on the, what, what they were going through. Again, making it easy. How can story help connect people um, with, um, you know, with helping others? And so that was always, so when, when we started to really get the hang of storytelling and technology, making it easy for, um, for people helping other people, that became sort of, you know, the mission in, in a lot of ways. It, I led from the experience down at 9-11 at, at and ground zero it just was like i felt you know this is this is you know what lit me up at the time okay so from there from Coscast, you left yeah. Coscast and you went to work for ariana grande what was it like yeah. working for ariana grande no, it was uh, Ariana Huffington. Uh, actually, the Huffington Post came and acquired the the uh, the, uh, the team within Coscast that did Impact, and the uh, you know uh, we moved part of the team moved to to New York, and with that we launched HuffPost Education, Huffington Post Good News, and other sub verticals around other social issues, and um, we grew a division that literally was focused on on various different social topics. And, um, and uh, I remember one day, you know, again, you know, this was a rocket ship. Huffington Post was just an, you know, incredible publication. The, you know, it was, it was the counterbalance of, of um, the Drudge Report for more democratic liberal conversation starters, blog posts, link, linking out news articles, aggregating information because the internet was so vast. It was, we had some of the best not just journalists, but editors that were curating information and, and understood how it could resonate with social media, which was taking off at the time in which um, what you shared on pages became an extension of sort of the ethos of who you are, right? And the, the, what you shared became sort of like your new digital, I wouldn't call it bling, but basically how you wanted people to perceive you. And so the stuff 
that we were doing on impact, people really wanted it as a virtue. I wouldn't call it really virtue signaling, but that's really what it was is if you cared about animals and you cared about veterans, it showed people that you cared about things. And so social media became this sort of digital extension in a way what avatars are right now or how even NFTs represent sort of a part of a community uh, and how people are connecting around those type of digital assets. Uh, you know, we were, we were, you know, really putting out content that, that let people resonate it with the topics. You didn't have to read it to basically go, oh, Shaheen cares about veterans or issues in the Middle East. Um, but you posted it on your page and that became a conversation talking point with yeah. social channels. So this, so let me ask you this. So this is, this is really interesting. So you're this guy, you're touring with Guns N' Roses and Paul McCartney, kind of rock star life, musician. Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson. Yeah, that was the, the other part. Nails, which I left those out. kinds of guys. And I've heard some of your stories. We won't discuss them on this podcast. For another time. It's for another time. He's got some wild stories. But from there, all of a sudden you wake up one morning and boom, you are now a senior executive at AOL, one of the largest publicly held companies in America. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you created, social impact, nobody was using that until you no, we were came along. You yeah. became the thought leader, not a thought leader, but the thought leader in that. You're sitting in this boardroom with these like, you know, I would imagine somewhat stuffy New York, Wall Street kind of authoritarian type people. And everybody wants to know what you think because you are the thought leader. You set the pace for it. And you are now this like corporate executive, whereas before you were rock and roll. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like in that moment? Was there a moment of reflection there for you? It was, it was, um, yeah, like, how did I end up here? I don't belong here. This complete imposter syndrome was, was present at all times and literally going, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and really being around people that were much smarter than me, uh, that were some of the best journalists, some of the best executives, people that have been doing this stuff for 20 years and here I show up. You know, it's a combination of timing, luck, trusting really smart people, and actually, other people trusting me that I could come up with these ideas and stick with them as they were trying to take hold. A lot of people, they give up too quickly, right? So everyone thought when I, I think, you know, people looked at me like, oh, what's a social impact or tell us about the cause marketing or, you know, and, and it, it didn't, it wasn't even invented in the sense of what, how we pulled these things together, right? But it really became something where, you know, where I, I was complaining to Ariana, again, it was like a difficult conversation we were having about, I need more people, I need to, you need to, need to hire more people. And she said, like, listen, you could find a way to make more money, hire whoever you want. And literally my team sat down and we actually figured out a way in which we were able to tap corporate equity budgets and CSR budgets that could fund um, how we were covering certain topics that are, were editorially aligned. And the division went on to basically do $25 million a year, which was a quarter of, which was a quarter of the company's entire revenue stream. So and it was literally based on an uncomfortable conversation in which you can create it, go hire whoever. And so I was like, okay. And that's what we did. It was, and it was this, um, you know, but in that room is incredibly uncomfortable because it was literally, we were just, we were breaking new ground without really knowing it. And I thought people were just like tolerating us or, you know, like, wow, this is just, you know, or they were, or there was a sort of element of, um, 
you are not supposed to do that because that's not how journalism is done. And that's not based on the clickbait type of right. uh, volume articles because we were, we, we didn't get that type of traction from a revenue perspective. It became something different, which, but we were the first ones to pretty much do that. And from that became a lot of the branded content platforms and CNN and Vice and, and later other publications started their own impact verticals. Yeah. And it made everybody love you. So Bart, let me, let me just paint a picture of this. So now Brian creates this thing. Brian basically brought tech to social giving to, to, you know, social impact, but he, he basically was able to fuse tech, Silicon Valley, all those millions and billions of dollars in there and the world of philanthropy and, and fuse them together to make them more efficient. Now, in this moment is when I meet Brian, and it's an incredible story. I was going through a crazy period in my life. I had a little bit of a beard, and I was like, holy fuck, you know what? Like, I just need a change. So I remember, you remember this, Brian? Very well. I had shaved my beard. It must have been like 12.30 on a Tuesday p.m., and or 12.30 a.m., right, 12.30 in the morning, um, not the afternoon. And I was like, you know what? I, I am going to go and deliver this beard in the ocean, and that is my representation that I am a new person. So I had my, my, my swim trunks on in Venice Beach, and I was walking with this beard in my hand, ready to, like, just give the old me. And I, you know, I think I had shaved my head at the time, too. So I was just like, you know what? This is it. I'm going to be a new person. I'm just, you know, going to let it go and let the ocean take away the old, bring in the new. And I look to the left of me and there's a dude watching me and he's moving in. I think he had like two bags and a gnome. <laughs> it was like in one of those movies, the dude had a gnome and I like two bags. <laughs> and he's like, and I look at him, he's like, can you help me with the gnome? And then I'm like, I'm a little busy. And he, I was like, he's like, what do you got there, buddy? And I was like, oh, the past. I mean, I'll be right back. And that's how we, that's, that's how we became friends. But so here's the interesting thing at that time, everybody wanted to be Brian's friends. Not that they don't now. I think people do now too, but he was the guy they wanted at all the parties, all the celebrities. I mean, we went to crazy parties with A-list celebrities and and all types of people in business. And I just remember, this is one of my most interesting memories of Brian, was that he got invited to a party. And Brian is one of the most generous people in the world. I'm sure you've got friends like that too, Bart, where you know, if something, something good is going on, they, they want all their friends in on it. So he's like, hey, there's this like party at this like mega mansion in, was it like Hollywood Hills? Um, you know, it's something for a cause thing. And I think, I think Brian might've been speaking or they had him, you know, say something and he's like going, and this was, dude, this was the wackiest party I think I've ever been to, to this day, Bart. First off, it was, I got there and I was like, oh, and the guy's like, would you like some hot dogs in a blanket? And he's got like this tray with like, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, that's not a fucking hot dog. And I was like, oh shit, it's a fucking soy dog. And I looked around, I was like, fuck vegans. <laughs> I looked at it. I was like, Brian, I'm going to fucking kill you, man. This is bringing me to fucking vegans. I was like, no, look around. I mean, it was all like, it was beautiful women because everybody knows that 
The, one of the good things about vegans is that they, they generally have beautiful women around them. Um, so there was a lot of beautiful women and it was just a bunch of like fanatic vegans and they wanted to save everything. There was nothing that they weren't saving at this party. They were like saving the dogs. There was some dude who was like saving the whales. There was somebody who was like saving, like they were saving anything with one or more leg at this party. And I, do you remember this party, yeah? <laughs> but Brian was the it guy. Like when he showed up at the party, their faces lit up. And he did this in a very interesting way because he was neither a celebrity nor a, a billionaire. He, he did have this like rock star vibe about him, but he was the guy everybody wanted to get close with because he was able to fuse those two words, worlds and make giving actionable in a very palatable way. Yeah, I think we were, we were just able to, to, to create um, the ability where, where we could resonate stories and surface them up within um, not just on Huffington Post, but throughout social where, you know, people weren't covering a lot of this stuff. It, it, the news cycle was typically like it would happen and break and then it would, it would, it would kind of go behind the scenes. So this, this was, how do you continue to have a drumbeat of, so, you know, it was, we used to say, like, hunger is not being cured tomorrow. And even through the work, it's, you know, for a lot of places, it gets better in some places and it gets worse in other places. And we're, we're a lot of places, we're a lot of times we're playing whack-a-mole, you know, but, you know, again, I think, I think a lot of the stuff, Shaheen, in, in terms of the journey is, you know, um, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of people are you know that I've in all these various different verticals. All I can remember is that parts of it was like they were all very quote unquote. You can make the like the you can make the definition of difficult, right? If you were to to, to classify, but when I look back now, you know I didn't realize why there was this difficulty, right? And except later when you're when you when you start to create things. And you try to basically quote unquote make a dent in the universe. What happens is that you realize there's parts of this resistance in which it makes it so hard to sort of make this artwork or to bring it to life because of certain ways typically things are done or people make money by having it in um, you know uh, life to go a certain way. And when you come up with something that's new or inventive that that potentially threatens that 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 what's happening, the difficult people per se are actually literally the ones trying to like, are, are like they have this potentially this vision of what they want to see in the world. Right. And then for someone like me who, you know, has, I, well, I have my own reasons of why I'm trying to get X, Y, and Z out of this individual, but it was really just about how do you have, have this sort of patience of learn and learn about, about, um, you know, what they're really trying to do right? There's short-term gains. And sometimes there's something you can't see. There's like a chess game that's playing behind. And again, this is just my own experiences. I don't know, again, for some, certain other, you know, other situations. And I don't, and I think that there's always something to be, to basically be taking away from somebody who's particularly leaders of companies or people that are starting verticals. Like they're just very misunderstood when they're, when they start. Um, but again, it's that vision that carries them through and people that actually continues to believe that actually something like that's possible, even though they're difficult, 
even though it's, it's, it's like they're, they're perfectionists in a lot of ways, it's still trying to create something. And I think it's incredibly hard if you can actually get somebody like, again, like I had the, the, you know, the privilege to work with like, whether it's Aaliyah's family or, you know, whether it's create our artists that are rock and, you know, even in rock and roll that were literally just so new and so unique and wanted the stage to be a certain way or the lights to be a certain way. At the time it's like, what's the fucking big deal? Because you're going to, you're not going to make any money on the road, but having the experience with the, you know, the audience, for example, first company I ever worked for called artists and audience entertainment. And Alex, who was my boss at the time, he said, my goal is for that, the, the, the artist and the audience to come together and have an experience that is just going to be so incredibly beautiful. And that was, you know, again, the goal of that company. Brand All the way to working with Ariana and HuffPost is like, again, how do you make, you know, how do you make, you know, again, content that typically no one else would pretty much cover in a way that was, you know, with incredible, great journalism that would resonate in social media and for, for you know, with a, with our brand, which was about, you know, there was something a bit, something deeper. It wasn't just what everyone else is doing. There was something Brandon, when you I came to the hobby. You, put, I want to yeah, ask sure. you about you. You, Guns and Roses, Axl Rose, Ariana, these are fascinating artists in their own way mm -hmm. and, and they have vision. But they chose you and you got to hang out with them and they wanted you in their inner circle. So my question is, what makes you likable and what do you do consciously so they're like, hey, I can be on their team. I'm not competing with them. They want me in their circle. Like, did you make a conscious decision or are you just that likable? I think it's conscious. What tell us your secret? I, I, I think you know it's interesting. It, it, when I started, I was so insecure that I wanted people to like me. It started from a place of 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 sincerity, and and basically, I want to be liked. I want to be loved. I want to be a part of this. And so I literally played ball, and I was like, I'll get like, hey, I'll get you that coffee. I'll get you whatever you need. I'm there, right? And that that becomes a foundation for for one part of it. The other part of it is that they knew even to this day that they can still trust me. I never, never, I never, you know, again, like gave them reason not to. And I think it was and at that point when you felt that, you know, and again, I made sure and I went out of my way that people re that realized about me and that I was, you know, a person of my word and that, you know, that someone could confide in me and that it'd stay with me regardless. That's what I prided myself on. That's like that, that keeping, keeping that, um, and, and again, pushing back enough and learning how to push back of like challenging people. Like, do you really want to do that? Let's look at the scenarios if you do that. Here's the good thing. Here's the bad thing. But again, this is your show. So however you're going to do, I'm going to be support. I'm going to support you. I'll, but I'm, I might disagree with you. And this is, or push back on it, or just like, say, like, you know what? I just, I just don't think it's a good idea. Um, it, these conversations happened a lot. But, um, and, but again, at the end of the day, all of them had a vision and it was our job to execute the, you know, to execute on that vision. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we did. It sounds like integrity, which means trust, uh, confidant. And you were sort of their coach, meaning that you weren't telling them what to do, but you were bouncing ideas off of them and actually saying, look, let's look at all the options, but you never competed with them. That's a pretty special yeah. skill set. Yeah. There's, there's a sincerity in which that you can, if you can show up in the room and just like, Hey, I'm on your team. Let me know. What, what are you thinking? What, what do you really want to accomplish here? And if you don't know, you don't know. Let's, let's sort of try to figure it out or, or maybe like, Hey, let's just experiment. Let's just like, I mean, we, you know, we did so many different things 
that allowed us to be innovative, right? That that this tr we just tried stuff because it was like, hey, it's a, it just sounds like a great idea. Go do it and do it in lightning speed and do it in a way that was just like like just go 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 and iterate iterate iterate. And um, you know we you know probably failed more than we succeeded, but at the same time it was you know there was it was a ride, it was a rush, and it was it was literally just you know being you know just showing up and doing innovative good work that would that would uh, make people's lives better. Like we were, it was whether it was music or it was social impact. At the end of the day, it was it's the same thing. How are you touching people to for them to feel? How do they come alive? Right? How do you how, how do we take what we've built here with our team and whatever the medium is and how do we make people feel like they're, they're, they're alive again, right? In a sense, like it, the product is, is, is like in a way like a bug. The feature becomes how do you make people feel? And I was able to be in those room with those people that were just brilliant artists who, and I was like, hey, I got paintbrushes for you, but they were the ones stretching the canvas and they had a vision of what they wanted to paint. And I'd have my own little corner sometimes. And, you know, other times it was, they painted what I wanted. And other times it was kind of like, hey, don't paint that way because you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it was very collaborative. And it was, it was, it was, um, I learned a lot about myself um, and, you know, who I thought I wanted to be and who I definitely did not want to be through it all. Good. Shaheen, I'll let you have the last question because we're just about out of time. And I yeah. think you're going to give away a book today. And um, I got two questions for you, Shaheen, and Brian, I lo love what you're saying. Um, you've got an Amazon company that you're trying to sell from aggregators, and you got a new book coming out. Tell us, tell us what's, give us an update for those that have been keeping track of you in your uh, selling of your Amazon company. Yeah, thanks, man. So Billion is out now. If any of you guys want to read more about my story, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, the first chapter is free on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Audible, anywhere podcasts are found. You can listen to the first chapter on audio for free. But please do check out the book on Amazon. It is on Kindle, and you can get a hard copy, whatever you like. And for anybody who would like to ask a question of Brian on Amazon, uh, sorry, not Amazon Live. We will be doing an Amazon Live next week. But on any of the live platforms, go ahead and ask your question. If we don't get to it on the show today, I will make sure that Brian will respond to your question. And I will give away a free copy of my book to the best question. Uh, also... For you guys who are just tuning in, we do teach people how to create predictable, recurring revenue on the Amazon platform so you can make money while you sleep. If you're interested in that, I have a one-hour course. I'm going to offer it to the first 100 people today for free. It's normally 200 bucks. It is Amazon Mastery. You'll see the logo shining behind me. Go ahead and go to fbasellercourse.com or shaheenshayan.com uh, for that. And Bart, I understand you may also have an interesting ebook or softcover book, however you want to give it away um, for somebody. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, this is one of my, my best-selling books called Success Secrets of the Rich and Happy. Um, I'll sign this and actually snail mail it to somebody if they want a real book. People still do read real books. For those of you that don't ask a question, just go to getbartsbook.com 
and um, slash rich, and then you can get this book uh, for free. Uh, and then we've got a program called Life Design. It's a 60-day program. A lot of cool stuff. I mean, I'm a kind of a little bit of a Tony Robbins, a little comedian, a little bit of a business guy. But if we can help you, uh, I think a, a little a book is a good place to start. So get Bartsbook.com, check it out. And for those of you that ask some questions, we'll autograph one and mail it off to you. And um, Shaheen, I can't wait to read your full book. And the, the first chapter, by the way, of Shaheen's Billion is hired professional actors. Like it is beautifully acted and directed. Like it is so compelling to listen to. And uh, I can't wait to hear the whole thing. So thanks for releasing it. I'm so glad it's on. I'm proud of you. Oh, thanks, buddy. All right. So, Brian, one last question for you. And then we want to hear about how people can get a hold of you and what your newest project is, if you want to talk at all about that. But before that, alive or dead, if you could have a dinner with one musician, celebrity, anybody, who would it be? Well, that is a uh, that is a great question. I think it'd be um, Ram Dass. No way. I would love to have I would love to have dinner with him. Yeah, Richard Alpert. Okay, Ram Ram Dass, who was the uh, Harvard associate professor with Timothy Leary. I knew Ram Dass before he passed. So very interesting guy. I knew him and Timothy Leary back in the day. So great great answer. Um, you just would want to hang out with him. You know, there's something about people's stories and he was a, you know, Jewish kid like me, upper middle class, like me, just going through life, trying to, you know, live it the best he could and realize that the, you know, typical American dream wasn't exactly delivering for him what he believed was going to make him happy or give him joy. And I think there was an exploration about who he truly was. And it had, at the end of the day, he, he never changed who that scared kid yeah was but at the same time his expansion in turn in that journey of trying to learn about himself helped him learn about other people and and i think it, that journey helped me become better it helped i think a lot of people learn about themselves through his struggle and i think that just sort of sitting down and talking to him and just like hearing like hey don't take it all too seriously and and you get to you know you you, you um you really get to know yourself when you just sort of like, you know, let it go. You, like, as he said, he's like, you gotta, you know, give it all up to have it all. Mm. So I thought that was a really interesting way to, you know, that resonated with me. Good answer. The book was pretty mind blowing. Bart, you read uh, Be Here Now? No. Oh, dude, it's, you opened this thing up. Brian, I know, cause it, it, that book kept following us around. I think every apartment you were in and every house I was in, a copy of that would show up. So be here now for you guys who don't know is this guy Ram Dass, who was one of these psychedelic leaders. He was one of the Harvard guys who was, I believe, you know, I might be messing this up, but he was involved with another guy named Timothy Leary, who were these Harvard professors, fairly conservative at that time in the 1950s, decided to start experimenting with LSD and then just got kicked out of everything and became leaders of the counterculture movement in those days in the 1960s. And Ramda subsequently wrote this book called Be Here Now. And to call it a book, I think is an understatement. This thing is a fucking, it's, it's like, I don't know how you would describe it, but you open this book up and you go, yup, lots of drugs there. Ooh, whole lot of drugs there. I mean, it's, it's nonlinear. It's, it's not a self-help book, but it is, but it's one of those, it's, it's like a great Dylan song or a great, 
you know, Pink Floyd riff where I would say it was, yeah, it was consciousness for dummies from the, uh, for, for, for people in the late sixties. And, and, and okay. So this is, this is interesting. I know we're going a little over time, but it's, it's fascinating for anybody who's been involved in psychedelics and theogens, hallucinogens uh, during any course of their life. It's, there's a feeling that you get, and I don't espouse the use of any drugs. I'm, I'm in fact more and more of the mind that it doesn't make us a better person in general, but the use of, and I know people are, are, are very righteous and uppity about their plant medicines and their ayahuasca and this and that and the other. But one of the interesting, not, not to say that you can't have profound experiences on that stuff. It's just not for me. I think maybe that's probably what I mean more than anything. I'm sure we've, we've offended the fucking vegans, the, the psychedelics people. I don't think we, there's anyone left on the show. We, yeah. We, yeah. Bart's we, innocent guys. S- send mail to mm. Bart. So <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's me. I've, I've offended all those people. That's, um, I don't mind enemies. But there's an interesting part of that experience where you're in it and you start to have these profound revelations where you start to have these like ideas where it's like a dream and you wish that it, it all makes sense for a second. And you're like, oh, now I get why the tree is green. And you have this profound idea. And if only you could bring it back into the world of the sober, into the realm of the sober, you, everything is going to change for you. Like your life will take a completely different trajectory. But then you come back and you look at that fucking journal that you were writing when you were on mushrooms or when you were on whatever those things are. And you're like, holy shit, this makes absolutely no fucking sense. And, you know, it was, it, it, it's an interesting story. I think someone told me it was of uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who, who lived around the corner, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, would uh, smoke uh, a lot of weed in those days, allegedly, from what I understood. And one day he was visited by a coach and he said, well, how do you think you play when you smoke? And he said, great, man, amazing. Like, I'm super chill. I'm doing great. I'm in the flow. You say, all right, great. I've got this like new thing. It's like a, a video camera. Let me videotape you and I'll show it to you after. And he showed him the tape after when he was sober. And that was the last time in a long time that Kareem yeah. ever, ever smoked. So, so yeah, I was just going to, I was just going to add. So, you know, the, the in, just in summation, um, you know, he went, Ramda, when, when, when be here now was his, about his experiences when he they came back from India and the reason why he went there was that because him and Timothy Leary kept getting high. And then the issue was they kept crashing. There was no sort of way anymore to stay into the sort of that level of, of what they were, what he was experiencing. And so he went over to figure out from these mystics, how they consist, how they stayed there without drugs. So when he was there, it was literally actually not using psychedelics or LSD. It was about meditation and sort of under letting go of, the sort of person that he was in which to connect to that higher level of consciousness. And so when he came back, it was literally the sort of like, here's the sort of notes that I've been able to in drawings based on meditation, which are also Vipassana. It was the technique of how to meditate and bringing it back to the West, which drove that book, which is like psychedelics were a good base, but you can't stay there. It's about mm. how do you live in higher consciousness and it was these these mystics that had in the in the Himalayas that had to him looking for those answers. And it's interesting. Steve Jobs went to go find this uh, Maharaji 
And it was, it was this, and he went there and actually literally when he got there, he died that month and they were stuck in India, not being able to find Ram Dass's guru. And they spent that time there finding mysticism. And that drove sort of the actual, uh, what we know now as the Apple experience from the time that Steve was stuck in India. And so it's really, it, so be here now brought Steve jobs over to India. Oh, wow. And so you have this connection between sort of people searching for stuff, but at the same time, just sort of like, um, you know, and I think that book resonated with people that, that knew that there was something greater than themselves. And it comes out later in, in, in a lot of the Steve's talks in which that like care, like, you know, stay hungry, stay foolish. I like that. I like that. And I think, you know, my, my point there only was that, I think he's one of the guys who successfully managed to go into that realm and bring it back. And what it looks like is a fucking beautiful mess when you look at that book. And that's kind of what I think our lives are all about kind of managing this beautiful mess that we think we can get under control, but we, we really can't. I, I love and, that detour. Thanks for telling that story, Brian. Yeah. I, I've been to India probably 20 times and it's always been a magical experience for me. And I love bringing that back into Steve Jobs. Um, Brian, tell us how to get a hold of you if your listeners want to learn about you, what project you're working on, maybe an Instagram handle or a website. What, what do it, you want to? Um, I just, you pretty much like you can just find me on Twitter at Surgutz, S I R G U T Z. I, uh, I've been, I keep my Instagram private and I just sort of, you know, only dose on it every once in a while, um, just for level of sanity these days. But, um, you know, but, uh, and, the, and the project I'm working on is, uh, is, is empathy, A M P A T H Y.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. And it is, you know, the goal is being able to democratize giving, giving people free money to donate to the charities that they choose. So it's literally inverting the attention model that, uh, people have been so hooked on and we're giving people free money to go, Change the world. Be the world. Be the change. One more time, a little slower for me because I'm, I'm real slow. One more time, that URL. Uh, it's www.ampathy.com. Like apathy, but with an M. Empathy. Correct. Empathy. It's the opposite of apathy. <laughs> That's correct. Exactly. <laughs> the op the opposite of, of 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 exactly. You know, there's you know, I think right now we're, you know, there's this problem we have with seeing too much information and feeling we can't do anything about any of it. And so right now there's the, you know, we're, we're stuck in this sort of like this doom scrolling panic porn, like just, you know, dopamine hit and you're literally, we're, 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 there's just way too much information. Right. And so right now, you know, how do you feel like you can have some agency and some control over your life? Because again, the technology is oh so overwhelming for the human the human mind, but it's addictive in nature. And so, how do you change and shift and bring trust back into the stuff into the into news and media that you're that you're that you're consuming? And that's exactly sort of what we're what we're building right now. So we're literally reframing it. Well, thank you, man. It's been fun having you on the show. I appreciate you spending some time with us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, catch us on the next episode. And if you like this episode with Brian Sergitz, make sure to like and comment in the space below. If you're on Facebook, make sure to like and share this. Also on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to our channel. This is Hack and Grow Rich with Shaheen Shan and Bart 
Baggett. Our guest today has been Brian Sergitz. And if you guys would like to have Brian back or have more questions for Brian, make sure to let us know in the comments below. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks so much, guys. Bart, thank you so much. Everybody have a great Brian, day. Brian, thanks. thanks.